On this episode of This Calling. I always go back to what that first choral director said to me about the sense of call being like a heartbeat. And our world is so busy and we fill our lives with a lot of things and it can be hard to hear that heartbeat. But I would encourage people to listen for the heartbeat. Welcome to This Calling, Conversations About Vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. These are the calling stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talk to the Reverend Hilary Cook. Hilary is a priest in the Episcopal Church, serving as chaplain of the Chapel of the Good Shepherd in West Lafayette, Indiana both a congregation and a chaplaincy to Purdue University. We talk about her journey from Vermont to Indiana by way of the Mid-Atlantic. How does a mathematics major wind up as a priest anyway? Here's our conversation. Today on This Calling, I'm talking to the Reverend Hilary Cook. How are you, Hillary? I am okay. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah. Are you going stir-crazy cabin fever? Uh, No, I'm an introvert. So for the most part, it's been pretty manageable for me personally. The absolute hardest part from our family perspective is the e-learning of the children, Mm. which has been... Uh, challenge, um, trying to help the children navigate e-learning when they really didn't use a lot of technology in their school. I know a lot of schools these days have iPads and stuff, but that's not really true of their schools. They they have Chromebooks in the school, but they don't use them a ton. And so going from like a real kind of classroom with books and paper setting that I'm used to um, and that they were used to, to completely online and navigating Zoom. And when do you have to be in which class at what time and which platform is this teacher using has been very challenging. Uh, the teachers have been very gracious, which has been wonderful. We have a great school system. And I'm so thankful for the teachers who are so understanding. And I truly do not know how other <laughs> children across the country are doing it. <laughs> Because they're going to like June, so even more weeks, and I fear we'll be back in this situation in the fall. But school ends on Friday, so well, good news. We're almost there. Yeah. So uh, kudos to your excellent school system. In what town do you live in? You're in Indiana I live in somewhere. West Lafayette, Indiana, okay. home of Purdue University. It's a great place to raise children, they say. And, and you're finding that to be so, so far. I, I am so far. Yeah. Uh, I was skeptical when I moved to the Midwest from New England, but it's been pretty good. Well, and so what do you do there? In I am the, cha- the chaplain of Chapel of the Good Shepherd, which okay. is the Episcopal campus ministry at Purdue University. We have a morning congregation that's largely non-student. So it's not only Purdue students. But the congregation is largely made up of Purdue University faculty, staff, 
um, most of the people in the congregation are connected to Purdue in some way or another. Hmm. So do you think you're more like a parish that happens to be on a campus or more like a college chaplaincy that happens to have a Sunday uh, component as well? That is an excellent question. I have been the chaplain since October officially, although I have lived in this town for almost 15 years and I know the Episcopal community well, and I did work at Chapel of the Good Shepherd the first two years that I was here. I was half time at Chapel of the Good Shepherd and half time across the Wabash River in Lafayette. And I would say that when Good Shepherd was established in 1956, the history tells me that it was more of a campus ministry with a congregation. And I would say we've sort of gone a little bit in the other direction, but really would like to be a campus ministry with a congregation. And that's sort of where the energy is focused. I think Hmm. Um, just changes in demographics over the years have sort of shifted that a little bit over time. So how did you wind up? There. <laughs> Start, take me all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's funny because I was born and raised in Burlington, Vermont, which uh, people who are true Vermonters, which means like eight to 10 generations of Vermont living, uh, would say that Burlington is near Vermont because it's, um, it's kind of the big city, if you will, in a state that had only half a million people when I was growing up there. Hmm. And I went to college in the mid mid Atlantic, and then I went to seminary in the mid Atlantic. But always, my plan was to return to Vermont because I love Vermont with a fierceness that was not understood by many of my friends. They were kind of like, "Why is everything that you say about Vermont, Hillary?" Uh, but I just <laughs> love the state. It's, <laughs> it's a beautiful state. There's lots of green. There are mountains. People spend a lot of time outside. I love snow. It was a lovely place to be born and raised. And then when I was in seminary, I was introduced to the man who is now my husband. And when I met him, we dated for a while, but he had already accepted a position to teach at Purdue University. And so over the the last semester I was in seminary, I thought, oh, if I stay with this guy, I'm going to have to live in Indiana and I don't want to live in Indiana. So I broke up with him. However, a a woman's got to have her standards. So you wound up back together somehow. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So about nine months later, he came to visit me in Vermont and it was so clear that I just really love him and there was no way that I could not be with him. So we started dating long distance, Indiana, Vermont, but I kind of knew when we got back together that if we stayed together, I would be in Indiana, Hmm. even though that had not been my long-term plan. So that's how I ended up living in West Lafayette. We got married and my husband had tenure at Purdue. So there wasn't any reason to be going somewhere else. So you did go back to Vermont for a little while after seminary? Yes. I spent two years in Vermont because I was in seminary um, with no plan to be ordained. And it wasn't until I was halfway through seminary that I started the ordination process. Hmm. So I went back to Vermont after graduation in order to finish the ordination process in that diocese. 
So you and I have that in common. I started at seminary thinking that I was going to nursing school and I was trying to just burn up a year with like a, a certificate in theological studies. I just wanted to kind of learn as much as I could about religion before doing something sensible, like going to nursing school. Um, so yeah, I started the ordination process at my field ed parish at the end of field ed, which is second year of yeah, seminary. Exactly. So, yep. Yeah. And so I, I wound up staying on and doing a, a second master's degree because <laughs> my wife and I weren't going to move back to Seattle, um, which is where we were, where we had moved from. And I was in the ordination process in Northern California. So um, I could drive to all the necessary meetings from seminary. So I said, I'll just stay and do a second degree. What else are you going to do? May as yeah. well study some more. <laughs> a bit more student loan debt. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but then my wife could hang on to her job and and uh, I got to spend a few more years. I was about to say waste, but it, it wasn't a waste. It was very fruitful. Oh. I just got to spend a few more years at seminary. So why did you go to seminary if you weren't on <laughs> already on the ordination track? Yeah, that, and how often do you get asked that question? <laughs> you know, it's funny because people here in Indiana don't really know that that wasn't my plan. And so no one no one kind of understands the full extent of the the call to ordination because even though I am young and that's part of it too. So I was ordained when I was 28, I guess. So for me as a 28 year old to say, I fought this call for a long time sounds really weird, except that I really did. So when I was 11 years old, my mother was ordained as a deacon in the Episcopal church. And we'd always been churchgoers, never missed a Sunday. I sang in the choir when I was age five. I started in the youth choir. We did kind of the Royal school of church music sort of, training. Um, and I was just always there. And then my mom was ordained. And so that sort of upped the the amount of time that I spent in the church. But there was a real sense of that being my family. The church was my family. I spent a lot of time there. The people loved me in a way that uh, I don't think a lot of people get to experience. I mean, it really was a community that I knew I could go to any anyone in the church and ask for help if I needed it. And they were gentle as they corrected me and they sure did uh, as they should have when I was a holier than thou teenager. It was really annoying. Um, So I just, I kind of spent all my time there. And I remember when I was 13, I grew up at the cathedral in Burlington. The dean of the cathedral said to me something about being a priest. I was like, (laughs) not going to be a priest, silly man. I'm going to be a veterinarian. I love animals and I want to be a veterinarian, which uh, was my plan, I think, until the end of high school. Mm. So when I was applying to colleges, my parents said, you know, um, just get a degree, go somewhere for four years and really focus on one thing, because what's important is that you have the ability to really go deeply into a subject and show that you can complete something. Like that was their philosophy of college, I guess. Uh, so I applied to the schools my sister told me to apply to, my older sister. 
And I decided to go to Bryn Mawr, which is a women's college outside Philadelphia. And it's a liberal arts college. So there were clear curriculum requirements for graduation, um, but definitely gave me a broad education, which was exactly what I needed because I had no idea what I was going to do. And when I entered Bryn Mawr, my plan was to study languages. Um, but instead, I fell in love with, with my calculus class that I took my freshman year, and I became a math major. So um, that was not what I was expecting at all. I was really surprised by the love I had for math. And my parents had said to me, study what you're interested in. You might not do that when you're finished with college, but do something that you enjoy. And they were right. Like I, I did need to follow something. When you spend that much time studying something, you should enjoy what you're doing, even if you don't plan to do anything with it later. And I, I was pretty clear even freshman year that I was not going to do anything with math when I graduated from college, but I loved it. Uh, I, again, I mentioned that I sang in the choir. So I was always singing in the choir. When I started college, I joined the chorale, which was a, a co-ed singing group between Bryn Mawr College and Haverford College. And the conductor of the choir um, was a, a graduate of Yale Divinity School, the, the music, the church mm-hmm. music program. And she had mentioned it, but I never really talked to her. And I was kind of totally intimidated by her and really wanted to ask her about it, but didn't know how to ask her. And at the end of my sophomore year, she announced she had taken a position somewhere else and was leaving. And my friend Lauren was going to go meet for her for lunch. And I said, Lauren, can you ask her what it was like at Yale Divinity School? And Lauren was kind of like, Hillary, I, I can ask her, but she's going to be like, why are you asking me this? You know, because it wasn't Lauren's interest at all. So before I could even see Lauren again, it might have even been the same day, I got an email from the choir director and it said, when are we going to get together and do Theo speak? And I was blown away that in this singing group of 120 people that she even knew who I was and that she would hear Lauren's question. Cause when Lauren asked her, she was like, really, Lauren, are you interested in seminary? And Lauren was like, no, Hillary told me to ask you <laughs> that Marion would take the time to like reach out to me, find my email address, reach out to me and invite me to get together and talk just blew me away. So that was the end of my sophomore year. We met together for lunch. And I said to her, I have no idea why I'm asking you about divinity school. I really don't. I'm a math major. I don't, I don't want to be a priest. I don't know why I'm asking you. And she said to me, Hillary, sometimes call is like that. It's like a heartbeat that just doesn't go away. It just continues to steadily beat in the background. And you don't need to know right now what you want to do 30 years from now, but pay attention to that heartbeat and remember that heartbeat. It was probably the most helpful thing that anyone could have done in that situation. Um, Because I truly didn't know what I was doing. And I was a very young sophomore in college. Anyway, so Marion left and went to another school. And she was replaced by someone else who had attended Yale Divinity School and studied music. (laughs) Um, And he sang in the church choir at the church that I was attending. And so (laughs) senior year in college, my parents are starting to get a little bit anxious because I've made no noises about what I might do when I graduate. And they're kind of like, you know, in this family, you do something. You don't just graduate college and bum around. You have to have a job or go to graduate school or do something, right? So (laughs) 
I think it was maybe November, maybe December of my senior year in college. I went up to the conductor, Tom, and I said, can you tell me what it was like at Yale Divinity School? (laughs) He was like, why are you asking me this? And I said, I don't know. I still just feel like I'm supposed to ask you about this, but I don't know why. And he asked me some pretty insightful questions about things that I enjoyed doing and what I kind of saw my life like. And he said, it sounds like you're interested in pastoral counseling. So I had identified to him that I really liked being with people and hearing their stories and being a supportive person, but wanted to do that kind of in a spiritual way. And he said, my friend that went to seminary with me is a professor at Princeton Seminary of pastoral counseling, and I think you should talk to her. So he connected me with her, and we had kind of a random conversation, and much to my parents' delight in (laughs) February of my senior year in college, I decided to go ahead and submit those applications two weeks from then uh, for seminaries. Uh, but still not planning to be ordained, just this odd sense that I was supposed to be asking people about seminary and not really knowing what was going to come next at all. Just this odd intuitive thing, like listening to this inner voice that I didn't know what was going to happen. So did you ever talk to your mom about it, who had <laughs> done her own discernment work? Uh, or is that just like it didn't occur to you or something? So, right. It totally didn't occur to me like that is a completely reasonable thing to do. And it just really, I don't know why I didn't talk to my mom. Um, And the funny thing was I had to have a recommendation from a priest as part of the application. And the priest at my home church had resigned uh, for a lot of reasons that caused a lot of tension and conflict in the parish. Um, And so I couldn't get a recommendation from him. And the priest at my church that I was attending in college had just announced that he was leaving because he was getting divorced because actually he was having an affair with someone. Um, So he was gone. So suddenly I was without a priest to get a recommendation, even though I'd spent my whole life in the church. And so it was kind of gutsy. I emailed the Bishop of Vermont, Mary Adelia McLeod, who I, you know, and I knew her pretty well by then she'd made my mom, the archdeacon of the diocese of Vermont. And I said, I need a recommendation, but I don't have a priest. Do you have any ideas? (laughs) She was like, Oh, I've always known you were going to be a priest and I will write your recommendation. And I was like, "Uh, we're just going to ignore the line about I'm going to be a priest and thank you for the recommendation. So she ended up writing my recommendation letter for seminary. Was it, was it easy for you to ignore it? Did you just let it slide off or did you have to like push that line out the door? So one thing that people in my family are really good at is denial. (laughs) And (laughs) so I remember like having a feeling about it, but being like, well, I can't acknowledge that feeling. So we'll just move on. Mm. And like, we just won't talk about things. that's just the kind of crazy thing that bishops say to anyone. <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of what I was, I was like, Oh, she'd say that to any person yeah. that would ask for a recommend. Right. You know. She's just being encouraging. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So I applied to seminaries. I applied only to seminaries. This is interesting, actually, because at that point, 
my the summer before my senior year in college, I worked in the dialysis unit of the hospital. So I actually applied only to seminaries that were near nursing schools because I was still hadn't ruled out nursing, even though I had taken like one science class uh, in college and schools that had a way of getting a master of social work as well as the master of divinity degree so that I could be licensed as a therapist when I finished. Mm. So I applied to three schools and (laughs) even though I can fret over very small decisions, the large decisions tend to be kind of intuitive. And so I thought, well, I don't want to be in that town and that town, I can't really ride my bike. So I'll go to Princeton because they have some good biking roads. Like that was totally why I chose Princeton. It's not rational at all. Um, I I mean, it really was completely irrational, the decision-making process. I'm kind of horrified now when I think about how I did that, but it all worked out. So that's good. Um, (laughs) It sounds very rational, but with a whole different like ordering of what's valuable and uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even apply to Episcopal seminaries, even though I was, my friend Paul likes to say I've been an Episcopalian since 10 years before I was born. Like I have always been an Episcopalian. I, I can even count the number of services, Sunday services I've missed on like one hand. Like I just, I am bored and bred in the Episcopal church and I did not apply to an Episcopal seminary. Hmm. So I did, however, uh, decide that I needed to take a year off between college and seminary, which was a really good decision. So I applied and was accepted and deferred for a year. So I went back to Vermont for a year before I went to seminary. And, um, and that was like, I had a job lined up for the summer And then I got this phone call at the work. I was working in an elderly housing place um, from the bishop's executive secretary. And she said, well, I'm sorry to hear you have a job because I was calling to see if you wanted to do some work for us for the month of August. And I said, oh, well, my job is going to be over at the end of August. I'd be happy to work for you for the next year. Like I have no idea how those words came out of my mouth because the me now would never be like, hey, hire me. (laughs) That's just not who I am. But I do believe it probably was spirit led. And so I ended up working in the diocesan office on the bishops. I was an an office worker for the year, which was incredible because it taught me so much about the polity of the church and how things were working behind the scenes and gave the bishops some opportunities to once again, talk about the priesthood with me that I completely just ignored. Um, (laughs) It was great. Yeah. Yeah, so I was in Vermont for the year and I, you know, of course, threw myself in to the church there that I'd been born and raised in and was a youth group leader. And then I did all sorts of new liturgical roles that I had not done before, like serving. I'd always been an acolyte and I'd um, sung in the choir and done readings, but I'd never been like the subdeacon during worship. And so mm-hmm. I took on some sort of different liturgical roles that year. Did you start to see? Um, your experience on Sunday morning differently because you knew you were heading to seminary? Was that like consciousness of your role within the church starting to shift? Or were you still kind of keeping 
Because I'm wondering if one reason why you didn't apply to Episcopal Church seminaries was because, like, there's the Episcopal Church part of your life, and then there's the what you're going to do when you grow up part of your life, and they they didn't really need to blend together. So why blend them together? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So. I'm just wondering, like, did you start to feel different on Sunday mornings? Did you start to feel like I'm growing into something? Uh, I don't know what it is yet, but. Yeah, I think so. Um, so I guess a piece of the story that I conveniently left out, uh, <laughs> going, going back to the denial piece of my family is that my mom has multiple sclerosis. And when I was in college, you know, I mentioned that the Dean of the cathedral had left. Um, basically they asked for his resignation. He, it was, I don't even know how to describe it in a way that seems accurate and kind, but there was a lot of conflict. And my mom who had always been a very healthy, able-bodied person um, exacerbations in MS can be brought on by stress. And mm. so while I was off at college, all the stress was happening and suddenly she was having trouble walking. Um, she had to walk with a cane. She had to give up driving. There was a really significant decline in her health and, you know, it's been pretty stable since then. So, you know, it wasn't the, the end. Um, but for me, I was very aware that of the role that the church played in that decline mm. in her health. And so I would say that I kind of emotionally checked out from the church for a while there, um, at least from my home church. So I was there, but I wasn't really as engaged as I might have been for all of my physical presence. My emotional presence probably wasn't really there. And so I think that year that I was there after college was an opportunity for me really to find some reconciliation. The new Dean had been hired by then. He was lovely and very calm healing presence for the congregation. Um, I think that that was part of what was happening in that year with some reconciliation that really needed to happen in order for me to ever come to a place where I could have acknowledged my call to ordination because I was pretty mad at the church, except not, you know, not aware of that because of denial. So, hmm. yeah. I think it's one of the things that anyone who winds up working in the church as a lay person or as an ordained person, um, I I'm hearing a, a pattern. The more of these interviews that I do, um, I think there has to be a kind of come to Jesus moment um, where you realize that the church is capable of hurting you pretty badly. And I think, you know, some people have that experience uh, even if they're not kind of working for the church, but people who work for the church always have to go through that experience. Um, I think it's because like, your life becomes so tightly entwined in it. Um, so when, uh, when that dawning awareness happens, either because something bad happens to you or to someone you love and you become like, it hits you um, like a ton of bricks that like 
this thing that's supposed to be so good is sometimes not so good. Um, you know, you've, you've really got to sit with that and, um, re like readjust mature in that, in that realization. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's true. Like people who, anyone who goes through a succession of romantic relationships, like, you know, eventually you come to, you have to come to terms with the fact that if you're going to love somebody, it means that your heart could get broken. And a lot of relationships end pretty badly, right? Right up until um, the one that doesn't. And then even then, how is that going to end? Um, that got grim pretty quickly. It sounds like you had that experience through seeing what was going on with your mom. Yeah. And I think the other thing that was hard about it too, was that, so the Dean was asked to resign while I was off at college and I had always been really close with him and his family. I babysat for their child. um, And I had never had a negative experience of him. And so Mm. I was a little bit aware of the things that went on that led to his departure. Um, But it was hard for me to, you know, it does take a long time to mature enough to understand that no one is all good and no one is all bad and that you can care for someone who does things that are really unkind and, and be present and not sort of defend the person who's done something wrong to someone else. And, you know, it's hard when you love both the people involved, right? So you Mm -hmm. care deeply about the community and you care about this person who's done something wrong and that's complicated. And I think it took me a few years to get to a point where, where I could hear other people's pain that was caused by this person and not feel a need to defend him. Um, but also know that my experience was different and it was okay that I didn't have a bad experience. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Very complicated. Yeah. So off you went to Princeton. (laughs) So off I went to Princeton. So, uh, my former boss likes to joke about Vermont being this like, you know, super liberal, hippy dippy place right which it really kind of is in my my experiences kind of were like that um <clears throat> and then i went off to princeton seminary which is i don't know what it's like at this moment but when i was there in 1999 to 2002 it was very conservative super conservative um politically like in terms of social justice and politics not so much theologically, interestingly. Um, my theology is very, like, uh, people would joke about, you know, me, and there were, like, four other Episcopalians, how we were all very, like, theologically more conservative, but, like, politically off the end of the spectrum to the left compared to the other people on campus. So I come from a diocese that was... Um, very supportive of including LGBTQ folks and uh, was just starting to talk about transgender questions. Um, And I walked into the seminary and I I was kind of putting up 
decorations in my dorm room and I pulled out my rainbow triangle ally sticker and I thought, I don't think I can put this on my door here. Like, I don't, I don't think that's a safe thing to do (laughs) Hmm. because the very first day I was walking with two women from my hall. And one of them said, did you know there's someone here that thinks it's okay to be a homosexual? And the other person was like horrified that anyone would think that. And I was kind of like, Oh, maybe I made a mistake coming here. What was I thinking? Maybe there's Um, more to it than bike lanes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Maybe it's not just about biking. Um, but I really, I don't regret the decision at all because, um, it wasn't, it took me a little while, but I found a way to be true to who I was. My friends who thought differently from me pushed me to be clear about what I believed, um, and to be clear about my theology. And we all grew together. And the reality is that the time that I spent at Princeton was really good preparation for living in the Midwest compared to Vermont because <laughs> not everyone here thinks the same way that I do. And I try, I, you know, I'm not here to judge anyone for their opinions, but I would like to hear where the opinions come from and how, how the beliefs are developed and, and see if there's something I can learn from them. And, and I learned how to do that at Princeton. Uh, it was a good place for that. There, there were a lot of hard times at Princeton. It was not easy to be a woman in the seminary there. Mm. Um, women's voices were not taken seriously. Um, questions that we raised about security, like none of the dorms are locked. So the only thing between women naked in the shower and anyone off the street was a plastic shower curtain. And the seminary did not mm. want to do any kind of security. They they kind of believed in God bubble that protects you somehow, like somehow because it's a seminary, nothing bad's going to happen. Refer back to my earlier points about the church and how it's not always happy clappy all the time. That's not good. Uh, no, it was a, it was a challenging place. Um, but I got a very good education. I'm grateful for the time that I had there and I made good friends and I'm glad glad for that. And I met my husband. So, you know. Yeah. So tell me about that. How did you meet? (laughs) So uh, I did my field education (laughs) um, at a church that was an hour drive from Princeton because the priest there was a woman who had gone to Barnard College, which is one of the seven sisters like Bryn Mawr. And I really connected with her in a lot of ways. And I thought, Oh, I can really learn from this woman. So even though it's a heck of a long drive from the seminary and there were Episcopal churches that were closer, I really want this to work. So off I went to Northern New Jersey and she was, um, well, she's now married to her, but was dating a woman who was teaching at Cornell. And so this woman said to me, there's this guy I think you'd really like to meet. And I was like, no, I went to a women's college. I really don't need a man and I'm not interested. <laughs> but if you want to give him my email address, you can do that. <laughs> so she was like, okay, great. <laughs> so she knew Greg because she, because Greg was teaching at Cornell. He was doing a postdoc at Cornell at the time. And so he 
got my email address from her, I think in the spring of 2001, but did not email me until the fall of 2001 because he <laughs> did some Googling and found my dad's webpage, which had a crazy amount of information about our family on it. Which I didn't know about until Greg emailed me. <laughs> um, Greg was not a churchgoer and he was a little worried that someone who was a seminarian might be kind of trying to convert him all the time. So he wasn't, he wasn't too sure he was interested, but when he read on the website that my father apparently was a secular humanist, I didn't know that at the time, um, was married to the archdeacon of Vermont that probably it would be okay. Probably I wouldn't try to convert him. So he emailed me and his first email was so compelling that I wrote back right away and we started dating. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> what was he doing his postdoc in? What does he teach? He is a professor of mathematics. Oh. Uh, as is my father. Uh, and I was a math major. So it was appealing to me that he studied mathematics and was not involved in anything related to seminary. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it was good a kind of a nice. Some distance in the relationship. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a reality check because when you're in seminary, you're so like all in doing theology all the time. And it's so important to do things that are not (laughs) theology related. It's true. Yeah. And a lot of the clergy couples that I know, there's some, there's some weird, like it makes it very hard to leave the work at the door when you come home. I mean, it's everything is church stuff. Not good. Yeah. Yeah. And I know couples that make it work and that's great. It was not something that would have worked for me. And honestly, Princeton felt a little bit like a meat market the first week that I was there. It was Mm. like all these people who were like, Oh, if I don't get married while I'm in seminary, I'm never going to get married because you can't get married once you're in the church. And so And it was a 60% male, 40% female environment. And so that meant that men were kind of ogling the women all the time the first few weeks. It really was kind of gross. Hmm. So what was your first date? Our first date. So uh, like we talked on the phone a lot because obviously we were not like we were Mm -hmm. five hours apart. Um, But our first date was in October of 2001. And I drove to Ithaca on my way to Vermont. Um, to go home for a fall break. And Greg made me beef stew and baked an apple pie. And he was house sitting for some, like taking care of a couple dogs that didn't belong to him at the time. And so we took the dogs for a walk and we just talked a lot. Hmm. Were you nervous? Oh my God, I was terrified. (laughs) Yeah. So he opened the door And my first thought was, oh, my God, I have to run away right now, (laughs) which was (laughs) kind of like, that's my reaction, right? So, like, people will talk about the preset, and I'm just going to run the other direction. I'm going to pretend that that, no one said anything. Like, I think intuitively I knew that I was going to be spending the rest of my life with this man and scared the crap out of me. So, I, I did not run away, but I wanted to. And his first reaction, he says, was, oh, my gosh, she's so young. (laughs) Because he's 12 years older than me. So even though he was in his 30s and I was in my 20s, and that doesn't sound that far apart, like 
I, I yeah. did. I actually, yeah. I mean, it was, I was young. <laughs> I was young, I guess. Yeah. So long distance dating. How yeah. long did that last for? <laughs> uh, so I, he moved to Indiana the end of December and I came out to meet him at the end of January in Indiana. And like we the spent end of the, December, that same. Yeah. 2001. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. So January of 2002, I drove out to Indiana to spend the week with him and we had a lovely week. And I basically told him at the beginning of the week, like, I'll spend this week with you, but we're not going to be together when I leave because I don't want to live in Indiana. (laughs) So he had a lovely week and then I cried all the way back to New Jersey. Um, Yeah, well, driving across Pennsylvania will do that to anyone. (laughs) Oh, I know. It's so (laughs) awful. (laughs) Really is. What's what? What's your? Uh, what were you listening to? What album did you have on repeat in the CD player? Dar Williams. Dar always Williams, Dar right. Williams. Yeah. Yeah, that was hard. <laughs> that was really hard. You got to pick the right music to cry to. Oh yeah, and uh, you know I love Dar Williams. She speaks to my soul in a special way. And a lot of her music is so sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, it was really kind of perfect is she, music. Is she from Vermont? I don't think so. I think she might've been born in upstate New York hmm. and she went to Wesleyan college in Connecticut. So I think maybe she lives in like the Boston area now. I don't know. Anyway. So, but it worked out in the end, like you did wind up. <laughs> yes. So he started calling me in the summer of 2002. And by then I'd moved back to Vermont to do the ordination process. And he was talking about visiting me. And I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Finally, I said, okay, you can come visit, but I'm not making any promises. That was October of 2002. And, um, and we went out for sushi when he got to New Hampshire. He flew into New Hampshire. <clears throat> and um, the next day, we were having lunch with my friend, Sharice. And I said, Sharice, guess what? I ate eel. And she didn't like, didn't miss a beat, looked at Greg and said, what did you do to Hillary? Like, she knew <laughs> there was something different about this relationship if I would agree to try a bite of eel. Uh, and it's true. He um, brings out the adventurous side of me and encourages hmm. me to try things that I wouldn't normally try. That's excellent. I think that yeah. the equality in any good relationship, including bravely moving to Indiana, which yes. is a very different world than the <laughs> East coast. I find Wisconsin, oh. I grew up in Massachusetts. <laughs> All right. I find Wisconsin is a whole different world. Yeah, it really is. It good really world, is. But there's, there's definitely been an adjustment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're just different. Like when I moved here, the church in Vermont was like so aware of recovery and alcoholism and like really making sure that there were non-alcoholic beverages every, at every event. And, you know, 90% of the people were vegetarians and I came to Indiana and I'm bringing vegetarian dishes to potlucks and people are like, what is this? (laughs) Like Mm. no, no acknowledgement of recovery anywhere. It was just different. So uh, we kind of skipped the, the, (laughs) 
the ordination process part. So you're in seminary and midway through you start the ordination process. So the denial about the priesthood is obviously wearing away somehow. Yeah. So I was totally convinced that I was not going to be ordained. And, you know, at seminary, everyone assumes that you're going to be ordained. So I had to keep correcting people and saying, oh, look, I'm not going to be ordained. And at Princeton, they have, you know, prayer services every day and Friday is a communion day. And so the last communion service of my first year of seminary, the person who was leading worship asked me if I would be a chalice bearer at the service. And I was excited because I hadn't gotten to do that yet. And as I was giving the wine to each person that came forward, I had this overpowering sense of God's presence. And I started crying. So by the end of communion, I'm holding this chalice and I'm sobbing. And my friend Jen turned to me and she said, Hillary, what's wrong? And I handed the chalice to her and I said, I don't want to be a priest. And I ran out of the chapel because I was not convinced, even though clearly that was what God was trying to tell me in that moment. I was not ready to hear it. So, um, the next step after that, I think was every time someone would say something about me getting ordained and when I would correct them and say, no, I'm not going to be ordained. I started to feel like I was lying, but again, still not really ready to like acknowledge that this was an actual call and that I was going to be ordained. And then my second year of seminary, I was off on a retreat in the spring. So I'm like most of the way through my field education at this point. Um, And we were meditating and I had the same overpowering sense of God's presence that I had at that communion service. And this time I started laughing. And when I came home from the retreat, I, I finally was able to say, yes, I really believe God is calling me to the priesthood and I need to follow this call. So I called my parents. So yeah, even though I never confirmed my mom about her sense of call or her discernment, they were the first people that I, I called when I got back from the retreat to tell them that I thought this was what was going on. How did they respond? My mother said she was not surprised at all. Uh, and that she and Mary Adelia, the bishop, had been talking about it for years. <laughs> and my dad said he was really excited and was really very enthusiastic. Um, which now, you know, at that point, apparently he was a secular humanist. So who knew that he would be that excited? But he was. Yeah. So You found your calling. I did. Yeah. So you wind up in Indiana. Uh, you have you said you've. You've lived there for a lot of years, 14? Almost 15, Almost yeah. Almost 15. But you've only been at Chapel of the Good Shepherd since October. So what have yes. you been doing for the last <laughs> decade? So when we moved here, so we got married in 2004, and Greg took a leave of absence from Purdue and did work at a biotech corporation in Ithaca, New York, um, which, of course, he loved because he'd done his postdoc at Cornell. Um, but we lived there so that I could be close enough to Vermont to finish the ordination process without having to fly from Indiana to Vermont all the time. And for me, 
It was really good because it wasn't Vermont. So like it gave me a year to adjust to living outside Vermont in a place that was actually a lot like Vermont, but wasn't Vermont. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like taking the bandaid off slowly. Um, So when we moved to Indiana, that was a year later, I was pregnant with our first child. I had been ordained to the diaconate in Vermont that summer but of course, in order to be ordained as a priest, you have to have a church. You have to have an altar where you can serve. And so <laughs> we moved to Indiana over Labor Day weekend of 2005. And I basically went to the church. I went to both churches. I went to Chapel of the Good Shepherd, where I am now, and met the chaplain. And he was very forthcoming with lots of information about the diocese. And then I went across the river to the church, St. John's in Lafayette. and. Um, I went to their eight o'clock service so I could try to be kind of incognito. I mean, I knew there wouldn't be a crowd of people at the eight o'clock service, of course, but I just thought that way I didn't have to meet too many people. And um, at the piece, or no, it was right after the service, the gentleman standing in front of me turned around and he said, hi, my name's Dennis and I know all about you. (laughs) I was like, what? Uh, Turns out, you know, it's a small town. He had a connection to the math department. And so he'd heard about me um, because Greg had talked about me, I guess. So I met with both the priests and I was like, so I need a job to get ordained. (laughs) And at that time, the diocese had money where they would pay half of the salary for the first two years that someone was ordained. And so Chapel of the Good Shepherd and St. John's each had me a quarter time for a total of half time. And so the diocese paid half of that salary and then each church paid a quarter of my salary. Um, But like, I mean, it was kind of crazy because, you know, I'd been, I got married and I got ordained and I was pregnant and like so many changes all at once is a little bit overwhelming. Um, The funny part of the story that hasn't come up yet is that my parents, when they met, My mom was teaching at Purdue in the nursing school and my father was teaching at Vanderbilt and they got married at Chapel of the Good Shepherd in West Lafayette in 1968. Wow. Yeah. In a building that doesn't exist anymore. It's a parking garage where the library is now, but still they were ordained in this congregation or ordained. They were married in this congregation in 1968. So it's kind of weird because I really never came to Indiana when I was growing up. I, I remember one, maybe two visits to Indiana growing up to visit my mom's relatives because my mother is from Northern Indiana, but I really didn't feel any kind of connection or kinship to the Midwest. And here I am um, back in this town where my parents were married. Um, so I was the associate rector at St. John's for 14 years. I served with um, two priests in an interim during that time. And the position kind of grew and changed quite a bit. Uh, when I stopped working at Chapel of the Good Shepherd, when the money from the diocese ran out, it really didn't make sense for such a small congregation to keep two priests on staff. <clears throat> um, that's when I pursued my doctorate in psychotherapy and faith, which brings me full circle to the original plan and going to seminary. Um, So my doctorate is a degree that would allow me to be licensed as a therapist if I would choose to do so. So I have not chosen that path. Um, Where did you do that? 
Where did you do Why that? Why did degree? I do that? No, where? Oh, uh, uh, Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. Okay. So it's only an hour drive, and it. Looking back, it's like one of those weird time things where you don't really know how you accomplished the thing that you accomplished because I I had two kids that were one and three years old when I started the program. And I commuted and I was working in the church and somehow I wrote the dissertation and I don't really know how it all happened, but by the grace of God, it did. <laughs> um, and that is a degree like your second master's degree. I uh, do not regret the time I spent on that degree, even though I'm not using it to be a therapist because I use that information all the time, Mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. So I loved being at St. John's. It was not on my radar to leave St. John's. It's a wonderful community. And when I was approached about being appointed chaplain at Good Shepherd, I was surprised at how right that felt. Um, It was incredibly hard to say goodbye to St. John's, even though I'm across the river and I'm still in town. So it's not like a moving across the country kind of goodbye. Um, It was hard, but I feel every day like it was the right decision. Good Shepherd is a wonderful community. And because I know St. John so well, and I work so well with my former boss, it's really bringing the congregations together in a a very positive way. Mm. Um, And that's been really great too. So what is your favorite and your least favorite part of your vocation? You can answer Mm. those in whichever order you want to. Well, my favorite part is always being with people and hearing stories and hearing how my story connects to their story. It connects to God's story. Um, that, that makes my heart sing. Um, least favorite part. Huh? Well, so I used to be super organized, <laughs> like so organized. And in college I was very organized. I got all my work done. I did even when I was doing my doctorate with small children and right now, I just feel like there are a lot of details, and I don't, I'm not keeping up with the details the way I would like to. So I would say that details, I think, are my least favorite thing. Hmm. What advice do you have for someone who's following your path? Maybe not exactly in your path, because <laughs> it's quite a path, but, uh, you know. Yeah, I think I always go back to what that first choral director said to me about the sense of call being like a heartbeat. And our world is so busy and we fill our lives with a lot of things and it can be hard to hear that heartbeat. But I would encourage people to listen for the heartbeat. What does the heartbeat sound like? I think it sounds different to every person. Hmm. Might be a stirring in your body somehow. Might be words shimmering on a page. Might be something in music that stands out. Bursting into tears when you're holding a chalice. (laughs) 
finding yourself saying, I don't want to be a priest, even though you didn't know those words were going to come out of your mouth. <laughs> all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways. Uh, yeah. All right. So what, um, what's your pop culture recommendation? What are you binge watching that you recommend to the rest of us or well, uh, music okay. or apps or video games? Just doesn't, but everyone's been uh, recommending stuff on Netflix because that's apparently all we're doing <laughs> these days. Okay. Well, <laughs> so in August, my husband and I binge watched all of the good place, which was amazing mm. and deeply theological and just really beautiful that I'm going to probably binge watch that again. Uh, more re- recently, we binge watched Zoe's extraordinary playlist, which I love, which is on Hulu. It's not on Netflix. So, you know, it's a different What's, platform. I've never heard of that. What is that? <sighs> this is, it's a great show. It's about this young woman who's in San Francisco and she works for like a tech company and she goes to have an MRI and when there's like an earthquake while she's in the MRI and when she comes out, she can hear people singing their feelings. So wow. like, she'll be talking to someone and they'll burst into song, but really they're not really singing, but she can like hear their feelings. And so with this power, she feels like it's her job to help respond to whatever conflict the person might be having at the time. Hmm. Um, and it, it's got, it makes me laugh and it makes me cry. It's like, it's a great show. I hear a piano in the background. Yes, that is my child practicing the piano oh. all of a sudden. Are you at home right now? <laughs> I am. With the Paschal candle behind you? That's right. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're just doing. <laughs> because we're worshiping worship. from home. Yeah. So I, I first I walked through the neighborhood. It's about a mile from my house to the church. And it's the, like the richest neighborhood in town is right next to the church. And I walked right through it carrying large handfuls of palm branches and then the next week I walked through carrying the Paschal candle and I thought this neighborhood is going to think I'm really weird, but here I am carrying another random item from the church to my house. <laughs> there you go. Did, you didn't, it wasn't lit. Was it? You didn't keep it. No, because no, it wasn't Easter yet. I couldn't oh, find it. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Is it lit right now? No, because we're not having worship. And I have actually a post-it note that says, put out the Paschal candle because it's behind me and I forget to extinguish the candle at the end of worship and I don't want to burn the house down. Yes, that's wise. (laughs) Well, Hillary, we are at an hour and I've been trying to keep these to about an hour. (laughs) I think the second one spilled way over, but I'm much more disciplined now that I've done this a few times. So thank you so much for talking to me and sharing your life story, your calling story. Well, thank you so much for asking. It was really wonderful. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Hillary. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, on Twitter. I'm at Apple Tree Pods. And on Facebook, you can find the page for Apple Tree Podcasts. Feel free to like and subscribe and review and share this with anyone who might be interested. If you're at all interested in Julian of Norwich and her revelations of divine love, check out my other podcast, which is called Notes from Norwich. 
In that, my friends Marguerite and J.N. and I take a look chapter by chapter through uh, Julian of Norwich's revelations, and uh, we discover what we can find. The intro music is called Cheerful by Bird, Bird, Bird. And the closing music that you're hearing now is St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. Bye for now.